We are finishing up where we started this summer with a season of rest. If you remember back at our last members meeting back in, I think it was Mayish time frame, just before we really launched into our summer season, we met, we called the church to a season of rest. Um, and, and in that rest, it wasn't like, oh, well, well, just be inactive, don't do anything. We're not asking people to take vacation from their walk with the Lord or take, their, take vacation from the church. That wasn't what we were after. But really emphasizing the importance of resting in Christ. We need the physical rest. So we, we said, hey, limit your extracurriculars. Limit the amount of stuff you're putting on your calendar, personal and church. And if you think about where we were at at the beginning of summer and what we did through the middle of summer, July was almost empty. I mean, we had our regular things, community group and uh, Sunday morning, you know, we had our equipped classes and our worship gathering. But for the most part, we sought to just really limit our physical demand or our physical activity. I hope you guys did the same. But the intent was to really find rest deep in our souls, not just rest in, in, in a lack of or a, a, a less activity, but really finding rest deep in our soul in the sense that we trust Christ so much that we've we have given our lives to such dependence on him that we find great rest. In the same way that when you take vacation or when you rest in physical ways, your heart continues to beat, your breathing continues. It's not like you're no activity, but there's a way that you're trying to find this calm, solid standing, just comfort, right? And so in those things, we, we, we recognize that all of this well, let me just say it like this. We know, and I, I don't want to continue to be here, and I don't want to have to always talk about this, but we've been through a hard season. You recognize, if you've been in our church, you recognize the hard season that we felt and walked through and, and the difficulties we faced. And we recognize that we needed to stop all the doing just for a season. Just rest. And as we rested, again, not taking time away from the Lord, not vacationing from our walk with Christ or our seeking to gather in the name of Christ, but as we seek that rest to reorient our lives around the fact that he is our God, that our God is God, and we are his people, and that he is for us. And if he's for us, who can stand against us, right? Reorienting our lives around him. And the, and the prayer and the hope was, as we do that, Lord, renew us. Do the work that you can do. As we seek this rest, as we reorient our lives around you, renew us. Give us strength. Because the reality is the heart doesn't stop. The living doesn't stop. The demands of life don't quit but we still have to endure. We still have to walk. We still have to, to persevere until the day he returns and makes all things new. And so, so we did that. We, we, we stopped and paused that Alpha and Omega series in order to just take time and be hopefully rested and renewed and uh, arrested and reoriented and renewed around the reality of God being at work. So we stopped our series. We did this series on the fruit of the Spirit uh, and we looked at what God does in his people. This, it was his work. It, it's not something we produce. The fruit of the Spirit is the, 
the product of his work in us. He's the one that produces love within us. He's the one that brings us joy and peace. He's the one that makes us able to express uh, kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. He's the one that that produces self-control in us so that as we live, it's no longer by our strength, but by his. So we took time this summer to do that. And I, I hope that it wasn't just here that you were seeking after and striving after these things. But as a church, we really sought to do that. But why? Why would we stop? Why would we, why would we really just press things away and, and put things down? Why, why, why would we be after that? Because we're looking forward to something, right? We've used the word relaunch, and I don't, I don't want to... I, I don't want to draw this big picture that, oh, we're going we're gonna to relaunch all these missions. We're going to re- relaunch this mission. We're gonna re- it, it, it's really just, instead of beginning to, to continue just to focus solely on rest and reorientation and renewal, we're going to call each other to this life that we've been called to live by the Lord as we continue to rest and orient our lives around him and find renewal from him. Always living for his fame. Having rested in Christ, reoriented our lives to Christ, being renewed by Christ, we are relaunching to continue living for the fame of Christ. Because of the gospel, we live for Jesus' fame. This is the high and holy calling of, uh, on every believer, on the lives of his people, to be a people who live for his glory, to put legs to our worship so that as we go into the world that we live in, we both practice it and proclaim it so that those who are Christians in the world and our brothers and sisters who are part of this church are encouraged to live for Jesus' fame. And so that then those that don't yet know Jesus or follow Jesus are encouraged to join us in this worship because they see Jesus high and lifted up. So that both our words and our works bring fame to Christ. This is who we've been. This is who we are. And this is who we will continue to strive to be. It's not some new strategy. It's not some new thing that we're after. It's not some new call. This is the call. This is the call that's been on God's people's lives since God's been calling people his own. And it becomes extremely evident, profoundly evident in the New Testament as he brings the mystery and the the reality of what he's been doing to fulfillment in Christ and then makes people his own in Christ. And that's really what we're going to study today in the book of Ephesians. Now, I've called out some verses. I, I don't know if you saw them earlier. Ephesians chapter 4. I would encourage you to open your Bibles, get to Ephesians. I think it's on in the book, in the Bibles, in the chairs in front of you. I think it's right around page 977. Somebody tell me. It says it in the bulletin. 977? Okay, 977. So if you don't have a Bible with you today, because here's what's going to happen. is I'm going to read a few verses to start with, just to, to, to ground us. And by the time we're done this morning, we will have touched every chapter in the book of Ephesians to see this rest, this renewal, this, or this reorientation, this renewal, and, and launching us into this life and this call. And you're going to see it, I, I think, very clearly today. So open your Bibles. Be there. There will be verses on the screen behind me, but I would, just, I would love for you to see this in his word. So let's read. We'll pray, and then we're going to dig in. So beginning, Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. I therefore, 
a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, would you be with us now as we seek to study your word, to study and understand and and comprehend? Would you give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we would know these things? that we'd be able to rest in the reality of your finished work in Christ, that we would be reoriented, that our lives would reflect your Christ-centered work, and that as a result, we would be a people who are renewed and strengthened to continue a life and in a call to live every day for Jesus' fame. Help us, I pray. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this passage provides a summary statement. It, 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 in the first couple of, of, of lines, you get a summary statement of what Paul is going to lay out in the, across the second half of the book of Ephesians, of this letter to the church in Ephesus. But here's the problem. Now, we've jumped right into the middle of something that gives a high and holy call, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Go ahead and do that. You go get that done. Here's the danger. If we jump into this and we don't pay close attention to what's happening here, we'll think it's my responsibility, it's my job, by my power, by my wit, by my pulling myself up by my bootstraps. I'm just going to go out and muscle it to happen. I'm going to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. It's never going to happen. Never going to happen. You heard it already, right? Like, we didn't plan this, but John reads from this passage in Isaiah that God doesn't grow weary, but we run in levels of exhaustion, right? Like when we run on our own, we, we are exhausted. It's only by him and his work that we will be renewed and lifted as wings, as on eagle's wings, which is also a phrase from Isaiah. Only by his power are we going to do this. So, so here's what we got to do as we step into this. We got to recognize an, a, a very important word. It's the second word in the first verse that I read. I, therefore. It's a silly saying. It's, it, it, it's, maybe you've heard pastors say it before, but it's a helpful saying. <clears throat> we've got to look at what the therefore is there for. Right? We've got to know, what, what, what is he? I, I'm calling you to this, but he just told us that there's a reason he's calling us to it. What's the reason he's calling us to it? And the therefore points us back. Well, if you look back immediately before that verse in chapter 4, verse 1, you're going to see his prayer. You're going to see his prayer about a God who, who has to strengthen us to be filled so that we can be filled with Christ. He has to strengthen us to understand the full heights and breadths and depths of his love. He's pointing us back to, to phrases where he's already, he's just told us that, that our God can do abundantly more than we could ever think or imagine. He's already given us a hint. He's already, already in, that, in that immediate passage that's just preceding it. 
we're getting a hint that there's a reality that we have to have something from God if we're ever going to be a people who live worthy of the calling. Here's the thing. If we stop there and don't push back into the rest of what this therefore is therefore, we're going to miss that it doesn't start with our doing, but it starts with our resting. It starts with us being rested in Christ. To see this, we've got to keep pushing backwards. We've got to keep going back into chapter 1 and into chapter 2. We've got to go to the opening phrases and the opening words of, of, of this letter to the Ephesians. Because what's going to happen in this letter, and we're not going to study it this deeply or this closely in our time together this morning. But what he lays out in the first half of the letter is all of these doctrinal foundations, these doctrinal truths, these, these rock-solid uh, realities in which we all stand and act and live and walk. And then when you, when you follow what he's laid out in the first three chapters, through chapters 4, 5, and 6, you begin to see the themes that he establishes in the first three begin to be practices that inform our life in the last three. So we, we, we can't just take this and, and just immediately step back and look back and say, okay, well, we need God's strength. Yeah, yeah, we need God's strength, but even that starts with us resting in him, resting in Christ. And that starts with recognizing that every blessing from God, that God's blessings are ours in Christ. Ephesians 1 Three. So flip over there and see it. I think the verse is on the screen behind me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How has he blessed us? In Christ. God has blessed us. We haven't received the curse. We haven't been cursed by him. We haven't been, we, we haven't been condemned and judged. We've been blessed. We're no longer a, a part of a people or, or, or by nature children of wrath as he calls us in chapter 2. We are no longer that. We are blessed in Christ. This blessing is every spiritual blessing. So every blessing that is ours from God is ours in Christ. It's not one or two. It's not the, it's not the blessings that we walk around saying, oh, well, I got my way in this. God's blessed me. Yeah, that might be a blessing. But what he's done for you in Christ, that's, that's more than temporal, that's, that's, that's more than just in this moment, that's more than just in this circumstance, but that, that redefines everything about who you are and what your life is going to look like for eternity, it's all yours in Christ. Every blessing. Every blessing that heaven has to bestow has been bestowed upon you in Christ. And then, what's beautiful, we won't, we're not going to read through all of them because it, it just, I just want to be careful about our time. We've got so much to cover. But in verses 4 through 14, he begins to break out. I don't think it's an exhaustive list, but it's a, it's a beautiful list of how these blessings, what these blessings are. And I think, I think these are descriptors of God's 
people. They're descriptors that become defining terms of who we are. And so I think we could summarize them as identity. A a new identity. Our new identity as being blessed instead of cursed is ours in Christ. Our new identity is in Christ. And, and, And here's just some of the aspects of that identity. Chosen in Christ, right? But, but, uh, holy and blameless before God in Christ. Predestined for adoption in Christ according to the purpose of God's will to the praise of his glorious grace. Redeemed, forgiven, grace lavished upon us. Lavished. I mean, that means it, it, he's not withheld it. It's not like he's dribbling it out. You guys have heard me use this illustration before. If, you, if you've been in the church long, you've heard me reference this, but I, every, I, every, I can't help but think of it this way. I like biscuits and gravy. And I don't like just a little bit of gravy on my biscuit, right? If you eat the biscuit and you taste biscuit more than you taste gravy, you've not, you've not got biscuits and gravy. That gravy has to run over. Like, it should be pooling up in the plate as you sop up that good, oh. Hope you had breakfast this morning. And if, if God were only just dribbling out that grace on us, that's not what he's done. He's lavished it. I mean, it is coating us. We're, we're drowning in it. We're co- covered up by it. We, we are immersed in it from head to toe, saturating to the depths of our soul that we have been lavished with his grace. How beautiful is this? That you've never known, a moment in your life you have never known his wrath because you have always been from before the foundation of the world an object of his grace. This is his word for you. How oh, so beautiful. But I want, you to, I want you to see something. I want you to see just the, the nuance of this and, and how it gives us, it's, it's basically giving us a new name, giving us a new identity. Look back at verse 3. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, right? This word blessed is three, used three times in, this, in verse 3. One time, it's us looking to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's immediately recognizable. This is a a, praise him, like speak well of him, speak highly of him, exalt him and proclaim the glories of his greatness, right? We get that. We could see it. But why do we do that? Because he's already done the exact same thing for you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. And just so you know, in the original language, that's the exact same word. Don't misunderstand. He's not worshiped you. He's not gotten below you and and raised you above him. That's a misunderstanding. The the original word is eulogio. The following word, spiritual blessing, is eulogito. Or eulogito. I don't know how. I, I mean, I wasn't in ancient Greece, so I don't know exactly how they said it, but it's one of those ways. Or maybe another. Sorry. Get back on this. He has spoken highly of us. He has eulogized us. He has given us, spoken truth about who we are, spoken truth about where we are going, spoken truth about our eternal position in him, spoken truth and spoken highly with the highest of speaking. Why does that matter? 
Because God's word is always true. You see, when we read it, blessed be God, eulogio, eulogize God, praise God, say true things about him, worship him, honor him, adore him with your language. Why? Because he's already done it with his language about you. And what's his language about you? Somewhere before the foundation of the world, he said, you are mine. You are redeemed. You are forgiven. You are holy. You are blameless. You are blessed to know the mysteries of my will. You can read all these things in these verses. You have my grace. This is so radically different than the way we typically identify ourselves. Radically different than the way we typically tell people who we are. But truer than the occupation that you identify yourself by to so many people. Truer than the relationship of mother, father, sister, brother. Truer uh, than, than, than any phrase that you might identify. Hi, my name's Seth. I'm Amy's husband. Truer than that will ever be of me, I am God's. Because God has spoken it of me, and if he's spoken it of you, it is as true for you as it is true for me. This is the identity that belongs to each and every one of his people, and no one can take it from you. No circumstance can shift or change that. Nothing in this world, from the heavenly places to the depths of darkness, can change this reality. God has said these things about you. Tell me that doesn't bring a measure of rest into your mind and heart. But we're not done. In the very next phrases, as we get past 14, Paul then turns to pray. And he shows us this. He's already been showing it to us, but he calls it out specifically, this eternal hope, our eternal hope that is in Christ so picking up that, jump down to verse 16. He says, I do not cease to give, pray, or to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then he's going to tell us what the prayers are that he's praying for these people that are on his mind. That the, God of our, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know that you may have certainty, that you may have confidence, that you may have experiential knowledge. What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? And so I've called out the hope in this, in, in this point, but I want you to see this. To, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance? What is the measurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. It's not just the power that he's worked in Christ. It's the hope and the inheritance and the power. These things are ours in Christ. Our hope, our eternal hope is that he has us forever, that, that this faith that I exercise today, that as I trust in him and as I live in this new identity with this, this new name, with this blessing from God, in Christ, I have a hope that is everlasting. That one day I'm going to walk into glory and I'm going to hear him say, and you as well, those who belong to him will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And you will never be sent away from him. And he will never be away from you. 
You will be with him forever and ever and ever in real and tangible ways that we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands. This inheritance, the value of this inheritance that he's given us in Christ, it's the greatest treasure ever given such that we can now live today in this life as if we have nothing to lose because we have been given Christ. And the power that he worked in Christ, the power that he's worked toward us, not against us, but for us, not condemning us, but lifting us up, not tearing us down, but building us. This he has all, all of this he has done in Christ. You think about, my, my whole future is secure in him because of him. My, my, my new identity rests in him. How, how do we read these verses and not find a sense of, it's a load off. The world we live in is works. Earn, measure up, make your own way, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You are the one responsible to do it. And God in Christ says, I have done it. Rest. And there's more. We move on into chapter 2. In the beginning of chapter 2, it opens up and we begin to see how, how he tells us who we used to be. By nature, children of wrath. We used to be this apart from Christ. By, 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 apart from Christ, we were uh, uh, dead in our trespasses and sins, following after the course of the world, following after the prince of the power of the air, the enemy, the one who's working in the sons of disobedience. We were under these two influences and the passions of our flesh, the desires of our body, which were all opposed to God. And then it comes to chapter 4, verse 3, or 4, verse 4, but... God and everything changes. Not but you, but but your wisdom, but but your 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 wit, your intelligence. You figured it all out. No, but God. He did this work. And the power that He's already expressed, seating Christ in the heavenly realms, He exercises on us. Our position is seated with Christ. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We were dead, but he has made us alive. By grace, the, the, the grace that's been lavished upon you, by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And, and notice, this is a past tense reading. This is something he's already completed. Christ is seated in the heavenly realms, and you are seated with him by his power and through his might. He has seated you with him. And what's beautiful about the idea of being seated is it's a position of rest. Not readiness, not work. You feel like you're working right now as you're seated? No. Rest. Rest. Christ's work, he did the work, and then the author of Hebrews tells us he goes and he sits and he is seated. He is finished. And somehow in the time frame of God, the eternal perspective of God, the, the view of God on his created order, he is able to see us in this position already. 
even though if we're not living in it yet. He has seated you in the heavenly realms. Your future is secure. There is a place at his table, the wedding supper of the lamb, and it has a name tag reserved for you. But somehow in the economy of God and the eternal perspective of God, he already knows you're there. You're at that table ready to raise your glass to the glory of the Christ through whom you have been saved. Rest. It's done. It's finished. It's true. Not because you've earned it or deserved it or could ever pay it back. It's done because Christ has done it. <laughs> well, then, why in the world would we ever give ourselves to other things? Why would we ever pursue other little pleasures in the world? Why would we ever run off after other idols thinking that they are going to satisfy us, that they're going to but we do. And so we must continue to orient and reorient ourselves to Christ. We are rested in Christ, and as a result, we must, if we're going to continue in this rest and know this rest to the fullness of it, we must continue to remain oriented to and reoriented to Christ. So back, we jump back into verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 there. And, and you can see how clear it is that, that, that Paul is drawing our attention to the, to the centrality of, of God's work in Christ and, and, and the centrality of this gospel message. One body, one spirit. You are called to one hope. He's drawing our attention from all of these other things to Christ and his gospel. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. This is to whom and to what you were called. One God and Father of all. Always reorienting our lives from these pursuits of other things to this God. And this is exactly what God, we've already begun seeing this. You see, we're reoriented to Christ in the same way. That God's work has always been and, and continues to be Christ-centered. This is what Paul's pointing us to over and over. You can't read anything that God has done in these first three chapters, any of the finished work that's been completed in these first three chapters without coming across the words in Christ, with Christ, because of Christ. Christ is center of all of it. It's always drawing our attention there. The truth of our identity, the, 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 um, the reality of our hope and the, and the position that we're seated is always causing us to look to and depend upon Jesus Christ. All of his work throughout history from the very foundation of the world, from, from the moment that he said, let there be light, John tells us, John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. There was nothing created apart from this Word. If it's been created, it was created through this Word. And then he tells us the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is Jesus Christ. Everything he has ever done, he tells us, Paul tells us in Colossians, it's, it's by and for and through Christ. This is God's work. It's, it's his work. It's Christ-centered. And because it's Christ-centered, our lives are Christ-centered. 
And we can see that at the beginning of chapter 4. We can be, see that as it draws our attention to these things. But it becomes very explicit in chapter 3. In fact, let me just read these verses for you beginning in verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. So here's what Paul's doing. He's saying, hey, because of the gospel, because of what God has done in me and what God's grace has, has bestowed upon me, my life has become Christocentric. It's become about and because and for him. So back in, just for the context of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The, the value, the, the unimaginable value of this, of this message of Christ he didn't go preaching, hey, here's your 12 steps to a better life today. He didn't go preaching, hey, here's how you avoid hardship in this life. He went preaching Christ. Because God's message and mission are Christocentric. And to bring light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly place. This was according to the eternal purposes that he realized in Christ Jesus. Now, I just point this out. Like, God's work is Christocentric. It's Christ-centered. God's plan is to show his manifold wisdom through the church. A people whose work or, or who have been called out of this world by his work in Christ, the eternal purposes that he set forth in Christ Jesus. This was according to the eternal purposes. It's always been his plan. And as a result, Paul's life mirrors that. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him, our faith in Christ, our, our whole lives. Everything about who we are must be oriented to this place, Jesus Christ. Because of him, we are who we are. No longer sinner, but saint. No longer alien, but citizen. No longer outsider, but family member. Child of God with an inheritance that he has guaranteed us. So I ask you, he says in the last verse, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. We are who we are and we do what we do because of the gospel. But I want you to pay attention to this last verse. I ask you not to lose heart. It, they, Paul's hardships aren't over. I'm a prisoner. He told us that in chapter 4, verse 1. He's mentioned the hardships that he's faced at the beginning of chapter 3. But he doesn't want these people discouraged, and he's not discouraged. Why? Because he knows that he is rested in Christ. He knows that his life is oriented around Christ. And as he lives in these ways, he is renewed by Christ. He has strength and courage and the ability to persevere because of Christ, and he wants the same exact thing for these people. And so then he turns to his prayer at the end of chapter 3. And, and the first prayer was about knowledge, knowing these things. The second prayer that he prays at the end of chapter 3 is about strength. Strength to put these things on and to practice these things. 
Now, just imagine if God has given you the knowledge and he's given you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you know the hope, that you know the inheritance, that you know the power, and you have strength to be filled with the fullness of Christ. You have strength to understand the heights, breadths, depths, and lengths of his love. And that you are walking with a God who is able to do more than you can think or imagine. Tell me that doesn't then give you the strength and the, and the excitement and the courage and the energy. The desire to do the very thing he called us to do at the beginning of chapter 4 verse 1. Having rested in Christ, having been reoriented around Christ, having been renewed by Christ. We can finally launch into the life we've been called to live. Uh, live and we can walk in a manner worthy to, that, of that life. We can do the good works we were created in Christ Jesus to do. How would we ever do that if we don't start with resting in Christ, with orienting our lives around Christ and being renewed and strengthened and encouraged and empowered by these truths, and by his presence and power in our life? When we've been renewed, we can walk in a manner worthy of this calling. We can be a blessing to one another. I won't read them all, but as you walk through verses four, uh, chapter 4, all the verses of chapter 4, he calls us to humility. Not self-exaltation, not self-proclamation or self-empowerment, but humility. A willingness to consider others more significant than yourselves. Uh, a willingness to count others' interests as significant as your own. Humility like Christ's humility as depicted in Philippians chapter 2, who though equality with God was there, it was not a thing for him to grasp, but he humbled himself. Taking the form of a man, taking on the nature of, taking on the nature of man, the form of a servant, humbling himself even to the, to the, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility. That is the only statement that is me-focused. Every, every phrase that follows out of this is others-focused. Humility, me-focused, I humble myself. I treat others with gentleness. I treat others with patience, which we've already studied is really long-suffering, right? It's the idea of walking and enduring alongside one another, followed up immediately with bearing one another in love. So gentleness, patience, and love. All of those others focus, eager to maintain unity of the spirit of the bond of peace, right? Like I'm walking with others so that we can be at peace. We can live and maintain the peace that he has given us and bestowed on us in Christ Jesus. But he goes on, he breaks it out and he's talking about putting off the old life and living differently than what you used to live and now living in the newness of this new life. And you get down into verse 17 toward the end of chapter 4 and over and over and over he shows us how we get to be a blessing to others. One I appreciate uh, maybe most is, is verse 28. It just shows this so clearly so well. Let the thief no longer steal. Okay, so don't steal. Don't rob from other people, right? Don't take from other. Don't sin against other people. Let the thief no longer steal, but let, rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. And you'd think in most instances that would just be enough. Hey, quit stealing from people. Go get a job. Pay your way. Do, do something for yourself. Be, be, a, be a participant and productive member of society, right? That, that would be enough. But the gospel doesn't allow us to just be about ourselves. Remember, humility, 
gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the spirit of the bond. Where does he go? Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. So, that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So that you can be a blessing to other people. I, I'm, I'm going to say something. It may be a bit controversial. It may be a, it, it might seem, come, apart from Christ, you've got nothing to offer anyone. Quit pretending. But because of the work of Christ, you can actually be good for one another. Now, he'll use everything in this world for the good of his people who are called according to his purposes. But if you want to purposefully be good for someone and be a blessing to someone, rest in Christ, orient your life around Christ, live in a manner worthy of Christ because you've been renewed by Christ so that you can share as people have need. There's word and deed things that are highlighted here. There's physical and spiritual needs that are are highlighted here to the point that he comes down and he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. What did Christ, God in Christ forgive you of? How many times have you had been reminded of that forgiveness? How many times have you continued to, to demonstrate you need his forgiveness? Are we allowed any unforgiveness in our heart? Is, that, is there unforgiveness being held in God, from God toward us? Kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. See, we, we can be a blessing to one another. We can actually do this because of who God is and who he's made us to be and what he's done in Christ and what he's enabling us to do in Christ. In chapter 5, we begin to see that we can imitate God's characters. Therefore, chapter 5, verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. I don't know how many times we've, I mean, you could go back and count them. How many times have we come across this walk in love? Or this idea of loving others and loving one another. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And Paul's already been drawing this out, that this, is, that, that, that this puts on and reflects the nature of God's becomes absolutely specific here. And if you were with us during our Fruit of the Spirit uh, series, I would just call out that already we've hit on like six of the nine. Chapter four, uh, gentleness, patience, love, peace. Chapter, the end of chapter four, uh, kind to one another, Right? He makes it explicit here in chapter 5. We get to imitate. We get to reflect and represent the glory, the goodness, the greatness, the grace of God in this fallen world. It's a, a holy calling, a calling to shine as light in the darkness. In fact, that's where it goes. It's like, hey, you're, you're, you're not to withdraw from the, the, the world. You're supposed to shine like lights in the midst of the world, but you're also not to join them. You're not to participate in, the, in, in, in their evil and their sinful pursuits. You're supposed to stand distinct and separate. Tell me that that's not freaky, right? Like, oh my goodness, that, that may mean I look like a weirdo. People may judge me and reject me if I stand out and live in this high and holy way. Oh, that sounds exhausting. How do I gain that sense of rest again? 
Look at Christ. Orient my life around Christ. Be renewed by Christ so that we can imitate God's character in this world. He, at the end of chapter 5, we can walk in wisdom. The foolishness of the world they call wise, right? Like that's the, the, the world is so foolish. Pretending to have all this knowledge and all this understanding. And it's foolishness over and over. But we can truly walk in wisdom. Uh, Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, look carefully how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. And we can even stand against our, at least in this life, most powerful enemy, the devil himself. We can stand against the devil. Having rested in Christ, oriented our lives around Christ, and been renewed by Christ, we can stand against the devil. Ephesians 6 through 10, 10 through 20 really build it out for you fully, but let me just read verses 10 through 11. In chapter 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. You know what he's calling you to in that moment? Rest in Christ. Orient your life around Christ. Be renewed by the strength that is yours in Christ. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. What I love about this is over and over in the book of Ephesians, first he calls us to this place of being seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. That's the reality of our identity, of our eternity, seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. But then he calls us to this life of walking, walking out the good works that God has called us to. And then he comes to the end of chapter 6, and he says, you know what? This may not even look like walking, but stand against the devil's schemes. That you can endure, that you can persevere, that he can't knock you down. This is true in Christ. We can stand against the devil. Having rested in Christ, reoriented our lives to Christ, being renewed by Christ, we can live for Jesus' fame. Because of the gospel, we can do this. This high and holy calling of our, on our lives as his people. Leaving this building, practicing and proclaiming publicly the glory and greatness and goodness and grace of the God who worked in Christ to make us his own. To live every day for Jesus' fame so that Christians we know in this world will also be encouraged to join us in living for Jesus' fame. So we unite in this purpose. We serve, serve one another selflessly to this end so that we can be encouraged to go and do these things. And we go out practicing and proclaiming these things so that those who don't yet know see Christians from all kinds of traditions, being encouraged to reorient their lives around Christ, to rest in Christ, to be renewed by Christ, so that they can then turn and join us in the worship that our God who has worked in Christ and applied to our lives through his Holy Spirit is so worthy to receive. We can be about these things only as we rest in Christ. Otherwise, we will be resting and trying to find rest in something else. Inactivity, vacation, comfort and security from the things that we own. We can be about this only because our lives are oriented around Christ. Otherwise, we will give ourselves to some other selfish pursuit. 
We could be about this only as we've been given strength and renewed by him to do so. The hard things of life are going to continue. You're still going to have family members and friends who get sick and who suffer and struggle. You are still going to face hardships of all kinds. We live in a world that is less and less appreciative of, we live in a culture that's less and less appreciative of the Christian paradigm in which it found its moorings and is rejecting him and throwing them off. But because of who he is, because of what he's done, we can live from a place of rest. We can work from a place of rest as our lives are oriented around him. We are renewed by his strength. We can continue to live for Jesus' faith. Let's pray.